And welcome to the Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside. We are the Retro Talk Network where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia, radio, television, movies. If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, or watched it, we talk about it here. I'm Smitty. And I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And we're so glad that you're with us on another Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. Before we go any further, we'd like to tell you what our email is and our website so you can drop us a note and let us know what you think of our show. Our email address is galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com, galaxymoonbeamnightsight at gmail.com. And our website, simply enough, is galaxymoonbeamnightsight.com. Remember that's spelled N-I-G-H-T-S-I-T-E. So drop us a note, send us a picture, send us a recording, send us a video. Let us know how you like our shows. Tell us how you think we're doing. We want to hear from you. Well... The U.S. Postal Service is saluting four celebrity cowboys with stamps this year. Ian Rose has more. Yes, some of them singing, some silent, some stoic, some smiling. Those cowboys were William S. Hart, Tom Mix, Gene Autry, and Roy Rogers. Now, the last time Roy and Gene met on camera in the years before they died, they were lamenting the passing of the singing cowboy those two were a big part of the 1950s television. In 1955, our family went to a show Roy put on at Madison Square Garden, New York, of course. I don't remember the admission charge, but a program cost a quarter, and I still have our copy. Of course, uh, there was his TV show with his name on it, uh, The King of the Cowboys, Roy Rogers, Dale Evans, his real-life wife, the Queen of the West, his uh, golden Palomino trigger, the Wonder Dog Bullet, and there was also Pat Brady... The comic. Now, the other Pat, Buttram, was with Gene Autry, the dueling Pats here. I never met Gene, but I visited his L.A. office. He owned broadcast properties and sports teams. And Did you know he was known as a benevolent capitalist? If you worked for him, you made money, and he made money. And if you worked for him, you told people that you worked for the cowboy. He wanted you to say that. You know, who would have thought in the 1950s the word cowboy would, decades later, become a negative word for some people these days? Can you believe it? <laughs> Back in the saddle again, and happy trails. I'm Ian Rose. Thanks, Ian. Hey, Mike, You, since you grew up in the Los Angeles area, you remember the radio station that and the TV station that Gene Autry owned. It was KTLA. KTLA. KTLA and Golden West. Exactly. And then he also owned KMPC. KMPC and KTLA, mm-hmm. they were the big names in L.A., Gene Autry. Gene Autry put a lot of money and devoted a lot of effort to his stations. And he had a lot of people supporting him and everything he did. I don't know if you've been to the Gene Autry Museum in Los Angeles by Travel Town in Griffith Park, but it's, it's wonderful. I never have. I'd like to see it. Yeah, yeah. Gene Autry rode in many rose New Year's Day rose parades with Monty Montana. Yes, he did. He was, of course, his... His work started in the 1930s. I think he was born in 1907 or 1908, somewhere in there. And he did, uh, oh gosh, he was he was in a serial, was it The Lost City of Morania? I don't know if anybody remembers that one. That's the late 30s. And, um, and then later on, of course, he did a number of things. He always appeared as Gene Autry as the character, as where Rogers would appear as where Rogers. 
I mean, Clayton Moore was the Lone Ranger. He wasn't Clayton Moore. But with these guys, they use their actual names as the character involved. Oh, by the way, when it comes to Gene Autry, we were talking... Gene took... His shows took place in modern times, didn't they? That's right, because... I think... Uh, yeah, they had cars. That's they were, right. They did they, have cars. They were driving cars in uh, the Gene Autry yeah. s- uh, well, serials. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Roy Rogers' sidekick. He had the uh, Jeep. Nelly, yeah, Nelly, Nelly Bell. Bell. Yeah. You remember that? That was modern day. Yeah. 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 50s we, we, we were so naive in those days. When he got mad, he used to say words like... He got mad, he'd go, Oh, oh mustard and custard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was about the extent of cursing in the 1950s. <laughs> Tell us about Gene Autry's Christmas song collection, Ian. Oh, his Christmas song. Of course, the big one was the uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Late uh, 40s. And this changed the whole dynamics of the eight reindeer. We, we added an extra one and gave him a name, gave him the lead, gave him a nose that lit up. It was, it was a, whole new, a whole new way of looking at Christmas. And here comes Santa Claus. That's, That's right. right. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right, right down Santa, Santa Claus, Claus Lane. Lane. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right down Santa Claus Lane, and then uh, Gene Autry, probably one of the best-selling Christmas recordings. Every year you sure. hear that, you know, it's Christmas oh, season. Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he, he would advertise uh, Wrigley's gum, wouldn't he? And he'd take a big uh, piece of it and stick it in his mouth and... I like it. I like it. I bet he liked going to the bank with those I'm royalties. Sure, I'm sure he did. I'm sure old Gene. Uh, uh, but it's very well remembered. And uh, Back in the saddle again. Back mm. in the saddle again. Do you think that this, uh, these postage stamps that are being issued, is that uh, sort of a, a recognition, I guess, of our Western uh, entertainment heritage of the past? That's Ian? a good way to look at it. And I wanted to mention the other two cowboys besides the ones we're talking about were Rogers and uh, Gene Autry, because I saw an article, it was in the L.A. Times a few years ago, on William S. Hart. Now, this man goes back to the silent period. He was born in 1870. He was 30 years older than the new century. So when he was doing his westerns about 1920, he was 50. He was an oldster even back then, which was fine because he had that, you know, that old look about him, which you seem to, we like seem to like older faces in westerns mm-hmm. for some reason. So he was a silent movie, but the, the, the gist of the article was there was a ranch he had somewhere outside the L.A. area that would, uh, you know, people could visit if they wanted to, and the story was that people just weren't visiting it anymore. People had, too many people had forgotten the name William S. Hart. Is he considered one of the first cowboy motion picture stars? I think so. I think he's about the first one. I'm, I'm not an expert on the silent era, but I, if you go back, I think he was making movies silence. In, as far back as the teens, which is, um, they, I don't think they got up to speed till about about the teens, did they? The actual uh, movies. Oh, probably yeah, the teens, mid-teens. Mm. You'll see William S. Hart Museum and Ranch come back, along with everything else that's starting to to come back to uh, nostalgia seekers, memory seekers. I hope you're right. I really do. It would be sad to have someone like that totally forgotten. But I guess, Mike, maybe this is another instance of something that's coming around full circle. Coming full circle. Excellent. And, you know, I've got to hand it to I saw him in a silent movie, Mm -hmm. and you're already, when you watch a silent movie sometimes, you sit sit there and say to yourself, oh, yeah, one of these old cornball old things, I'll sit through it. Well, I sat through it, and this is a silent movie, you know, almost a century old, 90 years old, roughly, and it had a surprise ending. You're waiting for him to go off with a girl. And he didn't go off with a girl. How about that for an ending? 
Did he go off by himself? I think he went off with his horse. Okay. Oh, well, the trusty horse can't something, beat that. Something like that. I don't know. But I just found it amazing to see a new twist on movies that were even that old. Wow. <laughs> well, thanks, Ian, for telling us about that. And that's uh, we're going to look forward to those postage stamps coming out. And they're coming out this year? Yeah, I think it's coming out in um, soon. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Number of weeks. Excellent. Well, yeah. definitely check, uh, check on that and stay on top of that. So okay. thanks, Ian. Sure. Well, Mike, you wanted to talk to us. We're talking about films, not necessarily Western films now, but you want to talk to us a little bit about drive-ins? Oh, sure. It's just uh, talking about things that are coming back okay. into styles. Believe it or not, drive-in drive in movies are making a comeback. And I was talking to Ian at our, one of our breaks about... Uh, I was born and raised in the San Fernando Valley in the L.A. area, and uh, I thought drive-in theaters, for some reason I thought they originated on the West Coast, but they didn't. Drive-in theaters, and I thought they originated maybe in the 50s after the war, but they didn't. Drive-in theaters... New York, or somewhere along that road, somewhere where, New Jersey, where? Why do I keep thinking Cleveland? No, we're both wrong. Camden, New Jersey. <laughs> My mistake, Camden? Camden, New Jersey. I wouldn't yeah. have believed it unless you said it. You would have thrown, <laughs> you, th- thrown a rock from Ian's house and you would have knocked out the projector lens of the first drive-in theater. Uh, Richard Hollingshead was a young sales manager at his dad's uh, Wiz Auto Products. He had a hankering to invent something that combined his two interests, those were cars and movies. His vision was an open-air movie theater where moviegoers could watch from their own cars. He experimented in his own driveway at 212 Thomas Avenue in Camden, New Jersey. The inventor mounted a 1928 Kodak projector on the hood of his car, projected onto a screen he had nailed to trees in his backyard, and used a radio placed behind the screen for the sound. This is the first drive-in movie theater. Uh, Richard subjected his beta drive-in to vigorous testing. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, for sound quality, for different weather conditions, he used a lawn sprinkler to imitate the rain to see how it would sound on a rainy night, and for figuring out how to park cars, how to park his customers' cars in the mud. Uh, Richard tried lining up the cars in his driveway, which created a problem with line of sight if one car was directly parked behind the uh, another car. The first car in would get the best picture. The last car would get to see the backs of the other cars, for the right. most part. By spacing cars at various distances and placing blocks and ramps under the front wheels of the cars that were further away from the screen, he created the perfect parking arrangement for the drive-in movie theater experience. You notice that even in the drive-in theaters 50 years later, you have ramps, you have mm-hmm. little speed bumps where you could pull the car up and get a better shot at the screen. Uh, he got the first patent for the first drive-in theater, and it was issued to him on May 16, 1933. With an investment of $30,000, he opened the first drive-in on Tuesday, June 6, 1933, on Crescent Boulevard in Camden. The price of admission was $0.25 cents for the car and $0.25 cents per person, not counting all the people you snuck in in the trunk. Now, believe it or not, that sounds a little pricey for the Depression. I was just going to say that. Yeah. That was actually quite quite pricey for the Depression, wasn't it? And it was like nowadays, you know, as, as tough as things are, if you've got something different, something cool, something unique, they'll pay a little more for the privilege of experimenting it. Uh, his designs did not even include the in-car speaker systems that, that we've come to know in the 50s and 60s. Uh, he contacted a company by the name of RCA Victor, to provide the sound system, which was back then called directional sound. 
Three main speakers were mounted next to the screen that provided sound. The sound quality is not good for cars in the rear of the theater again, or for the surrounding neighbors. Uh, the largest drive-in theater as far as capacity was the all-weather drive-in in Kopiak, New York. All-weather had parking for 2,500 cars, an indoor 1,200-seat viewing area, a kid's playground, a full-service restaurant, and a shuttle train that took customers from their cars around the 28-acre theater lot. This was <laughs> this was like wow. the Disneyland for drive-ins. Yeah. Oh, my. An interesting innovation in the world of drive-in movie history was the combination drive-in and fly-in theater. On June 3, 1948, Edward Brown, Jr. opened the first theater for cars and small planes. <laughs> Ed Brown's drive-in and fly-in at Asbury Park, New Jersey, again, Ian, had the capacity for 500 cars and 25 airplanes. An airfield was placed next to the drive-in, and planes would taxi to the last row of the theater. My goodness. When the movies were over, Brown provided a tow for the planes to be brought back to the airfield so they could take off and go up on their destinations. Uh, baby boomers, drive-in theaters are coming back. Oh, they I'm glad are to hear coming it. back. In uh, 1958, over 4,000 drive-ins dotted the U.S. landscape. It's about one-tenth that nowadays, but uh, they're booming. They're coming back. People are taking these old drives in. I learned about a guy who bought a drive-in theater on eBay, and it's very successful. Uh, new entertainment options such as television and multiplex theaters back in the 70s and 80s caused a lot of these drive-ins to shut down, but today the upswing of drive-in theater is continuing. Baby boomers' love for nostalgia, kind of like what we're doing with these shows, is creating a nationwide resurgence in drive-in theaters across the United States. And more are opening every season. Spring and summer are the best time, of course, for drive-ins. I think I remember the first drive-in I was taken to, I think it's six years old. I remember the movie. It was Pork Shop Hill with Gregory Peck. Black and white. 1959. Slept through it. But it was exciting. <laughs> Hey, that was a good war movie, too, because you were only, you said you were six? I think I was six, yeah, I must okay, have been six years old. That's a good enough excuse. Well, wasn't there, yeah. wasn't there a thing where mom and dad w wanted to go to the drive-in to see the movie, and they would take the kids bundled up in their PJs, yeah, and it, kids would fall asleep in the back seat? Yeah, we'd, and, all, we'd, all, we'd have our pajamas yep. on, and we'd have blankets in the back, and and my dad would go to the concession stand, and... We thought it was just great. We didn't really care about the movie. We were zonked out, but the big barrel of popcorn sure. and the sodas. And and then do you all remember the breaks between the movies where you'd have the cartoon characters marching across the screen, go on out to the lobby. <laughs> <laughs> or, <laughs> or have some delicious popcorn. Delicious or, popcorn. And were they the characters that had the countdown before the movie started? The I countdown. Think? There you go. <laughs> and, you know, drive-in movies... I believe they are coming back because, think about it, it's an economical way to get the entire family in to see the movie. Hmm. And uh, it's some of the uh, some of the driving theaters where I grew up in San Fernando Valley were just, they were works of art. They had mm -hmm. the pink swans, and one had a swimming pool. And, and I remember one in El Monte had a swing set, a whole playground area, right under the screen where the parents could take their kids and, you know, let them play on the swing sets and the slides and whatnot while they were back in the car watching the movie. Yeah, Mike, is there a particular time frame that we could call the golden age of drive-ins? Was there anything that we can define as that, like the 50s, uh, the 60s? Well, there, there's a lot of discussion on that, and probably 
the heyday of the drive-in movie era was mid-50s to mid-60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, mid-50s, and you go to some of the drive-ins nowadays that have been converted into swap meets and flea markets, mm-hmm. and you'll see the stalls. They're big parking spots. Of course, they had to accommodate the big Buicks and the big uh, Detroit Iron. Of course, the big screens, they were mostly framed in with, with wood, and most of them came about in the in the mid 50s all the way up to the early 60s and if you notice they start dwindling away as people got their VCRs as the uh as the multiplex theaters came in also because of the land became too valuable the land became valuable mm-hmm. probably liability insurance played into it uh Again, we talked. We talked on one of our earlier segments about time shifting, about about regular uh, movie houses where people can go in now at ten o'clock in the morning. People just don't have the schedules where they get off work at five o'clock. In the case of drive-ins, would have to wait till sundown to be able to watch the movie. Mm-hmm. So that eliminated a, a, a lot of the market interest because, of course, <laughs> you had to wait till darkness to be able to see the screen. Mm-hmm. Drive-in theaters had a lot of commonality in the names of the drive-in. The number one name for a drive-in theater was the Starlight. Ah. Number two was Moonlight. The Moonlight Drive-In, the Valley Drive-In, Sunset, Sky View, and Star View. So you think of 4,000 drive-in theaters with maybe in common with 20 names for these (laughs) drive-ins. They used the same names. I think we had two we had two out in L.A. that were both called the Valley wow. Drive-In. One was in El Monte, one was in San Fernando Valley. If you were raised, you knew which one you were talking about. <laughs> if you were raised out there. And there were a lot of songs dedicated to drive-in theaters, of course, from Greece. Alone at a Drive-In Movie was one of the most famous songs, made famous by John Travolta in the movie Grease. Uh, Burger and Fries, Charlie Pride, uh, Dream Boy from Annette Funicello. David Bowie even had one called Drive-In Saturday. So Drive-In, again, a good piece of nostalgia, a good, a good memory from way back. But as with a lot of the things we talk about on our shows here at Galaxy Moonbeam, these things are coming back. So we'll have a second occurrence of Drive-Ins and the other things we talk about. I guess we will call those version 2.0. Yeah. And uh, the next generation will be having these these little get-togethers and these talks based on the good old days when the drive-ins came into the second generation of being. Again, as we've mentioned before, these things do have a way of coming around full circle, so maybe a whole new generation will get to experience those drive-ins. Well, they were different. They were unique. Uh, Imagine any family nowadays doing anything as a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I grew up, the family got in, we got in the family station wagon and, and took a two-week vacation across the country, all together, all in the same car, only to return after the vacation as a family unit. Right. Uh, I think there's a period of time where that just wasn't seen. I think it's coming back now. Because, you know, the family that goes to drive-ins together stays together. Yes, until it's time to hit the concession stand, then Dad gets to go there. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, the folding tray with the sodas and the hot dogs and the. Mike was the was the food at the <laughs> was the food at the drive-ins back in the fifties really good. Uh, uh, the food apparently was really good. I think it. I think in your mind, 
the food was going to be good because you were going to get it at the drive-in right. and, ah. and have it at the drive-in, which is like cotton candy at a carnival. Sure. You buy the bag of cotton candy down at the local convenience store, and it just doesn't taste as good. It certainly doesn't bring the memories as a big hot stick of cotton candy at, no at the carnival in your town. The other thing, uh, food at drive-ins was very regional. I did some research about a drive, very popular drive-in in El Paso, Texas, and people would go to this drive-in for miles around to have something called the Chihuahua. It was a jalapeno, it was a jalapeno pepper with some melted cheese and some chili wrapped up in a big tortilla like a hot dog. And it was trademarked just for that drive-in called the Chihuahua. Mm. Wow, how about that? Yeah. I'd be afraid to bite into it. It might have been yeah. kind of hot. No, yeah. I was thinking a Chihuahua dog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> I, I bite into it, I hear a scream, a, you know, a bark. Not, not a bark in the bun. Exactly. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you for sharing that. That was thank really you. neat. Oh, that was very insightful. Very insightful. And we hope that if you remember... If you remember drive-ins back in the day, you'll drop us a note and share your memories with us because we really would like to hear what you remember about drive-ins back in the day. So thanks again, Mike. That was fun. Well, we're going to pause now for our retro-mercial, and we're going to be back with uh, another essay by Ian Rose and more more to come right here on Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We'll be right back. Going through so many changes Reaching, growing all the time Knowing that somehow I'd stay the same And so it goes with Olympia fear So crisp and so clean The message is clear You know what only means Let me tell you The crisp, clean taste of Olympia beer has never changed, and it never will. Come on along and raise the taste of Oli, now's the time. You owe yourself the best beer in the land of Oli. Olympia, beer doesn't get any better. And that was a neat commercial. That's one of the newer commercials that we've had on our program, commercial for Olympia Beer, and that dates to 1976. Do you remember that, Ian? I remember that at the time, the people that were advertising Olympia Beer were using the nickname that everyone was using at the time called Oli Beer. Yeah. So the advertisers decided to go right along with it, I think. Isn't sure. That, isn't I, that what happened? I think that's what happened, yeah, and they were calling it Oli, so... Anyway, just a neat commercial from the past. Anyway, yeah, Oli Beer, I remember that. Olympia, made famous by Clint Eastwood. That's the beer he would drink in those 70s movies. He would always drink Olympia beer. I don't know if he had a share in that or what, but uh, (laughs) it provoked me as a consumer to go and get Olympia beer because I want to be like Clint Eastwood. And he sat there and he said, did I drink six beers or only five? Well, Well, did I, punk? Well, I really don't remember. Uh, nor do we want to know. Yes. <laughs> Come in the 16-ounce Magnum cans. Yeah. Oh, look out. Oh, we're back to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight, the podcast. We are the Retro Talk Network where we talk about anything having to do with nostalgia, radio, television, movies. 
If you plugged it in, turned it on, listened to it, or watched it, we talk about it right here. I'm Mike. And I'm Smitty. And I'm Ian. And speaking of Ian, Ian's got one of his essays he's been working on. Smitty, what's he, he got? He certainly does. Mike, we're going to hear from Ian now. In the 1950s, there was the mail connection. Ian Rose remembers. That's mail, not M-A-L-E, but mail, M-A-I-L, the post, letters and packages, particularly the packages, small but important you remember those uh, breakfast cereal premiums? All you needed was the top of a box of cereal to prove you'd bought it. 25 cents in coin. You put it in an envelope. You put that in the mail, M-A-I-L. And a few weeks later, a particular item arrived at your mailbox. One of the best were the Rice Krispies Snap Crackle and Pop Hand Puppets. Now, I recall that each came with some kind of, of a device you turned and changed the expression on their faces, believe it or not. Perhaps the most popular items were those, the submersibles. You know, they would sink in water, and then they would rise. We sent away separately for a small submarine and later on a Navy frogman. Both had small containers where you could insert baking soda. So you dropped either in the sink water and they sank, but then the baking soda reacted to the water, the bubbles, and they didn't escape, but then the item rose to the surface. Oh, how exciting. It was also through a protective covering from a jar of Ovaltine and some change that I received my membership card to Captain Midnight's Secret Squadron. I got my card, and to this day, I still remember my SQ number. It's SQ4604. Yes, you never forget your SQ number. I'm SQ4604, Ian Rose. Are you still a member in good standing of that organization? Well, it's never been rescinded, so I can only assume that I am. <laughs> now, I want to make a side note here, if I may. Remember, Secret Squadron has two S's, mm-hmm. but they couldn't use the term SS oh, for obvious right. reasons. Obviously, yeah. Hitler's Secret Police. Exactly. Well, SQ, what did SQ stand for? Secret then? Squadron. They just took the S and then the Q of the second Secret Squadron. Okay. Secret, Secret Squadron? Squ- How about... Secretly questionable. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, but kindly. I remember. But I remember sending away for stuff when I was a kid. The wait was oh. agonizing. Oh, especially when it was something that you really were looking forward to. You saved up all summer for the chameleon that included the meal worms to feed the chameleon <laughs> with. And by the time it got to you, the meal worms were very happy, and there were pieces of the dead chameleon left. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, how unfortunate. I remember that. Poor chameleon. Mike, did that really happen? That really happened. Oh, I uh, li- Live chameleon, train them as pets. I forgot what the hype was on them, but I, I think it was $2 plus a dollar shipping includes a supply of of mealworms for your new pet chameleon, and how we waited every day and every day and every day. We knew something was wrong when the uh, postal carrier came up and he had the uh, the box, plain brown wrapped box, with no air holes in it. Oh. Someone forgot to put the air holes oh, in no. it, or it just might have been the bumpy ride on airmail for the poor been. chameleon. Sure. But, uh uh, the chameleon came dead. Uh, how about, Ian, you remember the seahorses, the pet I, seahorses? I never sent away, but I saw those advertised. What were those all about? I remember yeah, those, too. Mike, what was the deal there? I don't know, but it was pet seahorses. Uh, 
they come, all you do is add water and they come to life. And I think you could train them to, I don't know, train them to you know, trim the hedges in the neighborhood, hose, hose down the driveway, whatever it is you car. could train them to do. It was great. They looked like seahorses. <laughs> I don't know if there's such a thing as a seahorse, but what I learned later, they were shrimp. Oh, okay. They were shrimp eggs, and you would put the water and incubate them, and they would turn into little shrimps, not seahorses. Oh, okay. And uh, I still, to this day, wonder how you could train a shrimp to do tricks. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think we're all wondering on that one. Yeah, and so the gist of it was, and I imagine that these shrimp eggs would hatch or whatnot, so they'd be like watching a bunch of amoeba in a Petri dish or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Well, kids were the biggest victims. <laughs> you think people are victimized nowadays on mail fraud. You're a little kid, and you, something in the back of a Superman comic book, you're going to believe it. It's in, you know, it's in Superman's monthly comic book. And we'd get this BB gun, or how about the uh, X-ray glasses, Ian? Oh, now th- now you're talking. And uh, they always showed the picture of the girl in the silhouette. You could see through her slip. Mm-hmm. The X-ray glasses. You yeah. will be able to see through people. Now they got that at the airports. Yeah. Yes, they do. What were those? Just regular sunglasses, and uh, they were three D. They oh. were. Uh, I I sent for some of those, and it was probably one of the few things that I ordered by mail from the time I was nine to the time I was fifteen that didn't come smashed, broken, oh, or yeah. dead. Yeah. But we got them in. We put them on, and uh, it was uh, it was something in the plastic lens that made you see three D. Well, it didn't make you see three D. It caused your eyes to cross. Oh, so you cross your eyes and go out and look across the street, and everything looks like it's in 3D. Oh, and you're sure. acting like Ben Turpin. I, yeah, I w- yeah, Ben Turpin. I would not recommend doing that uh, because you don't want to go away looking like Marty Feldman, and you certainly don't want to try and see if you can uh, see through your neighbor's wife's dress no, with X-ray vision. I, that might not be a good thing. No, no, no uh, days. complimentary shovel across the skull included with every purchase. Yes, exactly. Mm. I had no additional charge. Yeah. Well, Ian, thanks for reminding us about that. We could go on for probably another hour. It seems like Mike had more fun getting Mike stuff in the had, mail than I did. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm so jealous. I added that to my resume when I was very young. Uh, yes. Professional victim. <laughs> <laughs> After the uh, deceased chameleon and the uh, the shrimp larvae, I think that probably would qualify. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, thanks, Mike and Ian, for your memories. And uh, if you have any memories of ordering stuff back in the day, drop us a note. Remember, our email is galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com. Galaxymoonbeamnightside at gmail.com. Our website, galaxymoonbeamnightside.com. Pay us a visit and drop us a note. That's just about going to end our show for this week, but we thank you for joining us. Keep listening. We have more shows to come, lots more fun topics in the queue for you. I'm Smitty. And I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. And we thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.